0: Hello and welcome to True Crime People and Places, the podcast where we explore the world of true crime from an academic and personal perspective. I'm Linda Sage, a criminal psychologist with over four decades of experience working with some of the most dangerous individuals in the world. This is a fairly new podcast and we are developing the systems and growing our audience, so we appreciate your support and feedback. This podcast may contain discussions of violence, murder, sexual assault and other topics related to true crime. Listener discretion is advised. If you are sensitive to these topics, please be aware that this podcast may be triggering you. If at any time you feel overwhelmed or distressed, please take a break and seek support from a mental health professional or support organisation very warm welcome back to this section of podcast and my guest today is absolutely amazing in an area that i think most people might not even have heard of so we have dr david junior gilbert who is a fellow at salford university working on fasd now that might not ring any bells at all but it is fetal alcohol spectrum disorders so gilbert thank you so much for joining us today with such a unique topic.
1: Thank you Linda, it's an absolute pleasure. I am absolutely delighted to be able to join you and uh, share some of the work I have been doing at the University of Salford. Thank you for having me.
0: We've talked uh, several times and every time I'm more and more in awe of this sort of investigation because it's something that affects so many people, yet it's like a a silent, insidious being creeping up on people that doesn't really get the recognition it deserves.
1: That's right, Linda. Yeah, you are correct to say I think the significant amount of individuals are impacted by FASD and many times it's been referred to as the invisible disability.
0: Can we just start there to say what is fetal alcohol spectrum disorders? give it its full title, and how does it differ from the other developmental disorders?
1: Well, thank you, Linda. You are right there again by saying the full title or the full nomenclature as we know it is fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. FASD is an acronym for that and really it just represents a spectrum or a range of closely related disorders that are as a result of exposure to alcohol while individuals are still in the womb so essentially research has shown us consistently over the years that this condition is developed when individuals right from the womb are exposed to alcohol so for us it does the simplistic or does the simple definition we try to put out there so members of the public and other policy makers, practitioners, professionals will be able to relate with directly.
0: Obviously there's a lot of links when you look at them in depth perhaps to the autistic spectrum or ADHD or things like this that there's quite a lot of crossovers of behaviour so how is the diagnosis actually come to?
1: Well, really, I think, first of all, one of the key indicators at the minute, I know there's ongoing research, even from my research team here at the University of Salford, and other teams around the world, I I mean, in attempts to actually identify more novel ways of identifying the condition. But I think principally at the moment, uh, one of the key indicators is prenatal alcohol exposure. That is a history of maybe alcohol consumption in pregnancy from you know parents of these individuals especially when when we look at their documented history. I think this is one of the places where professionals who diagnose look for then other things like you know their executive functioning so executive functioning just refers to the ability to undertake goal oriented behaviour and things like the extent to which individuals will control their impulse in public or their social behaviours their cognition and all of that so all of these components form part of the executive functioning and this is one indicator where professionals who diagnose actually look into and Then other things like the growth or development of the individual as compared to normal people or sorry or neurotypical individuals is also looked at. Mm -hmm. And this is because alcohol in itself is known as a teratogen. That means it has the capacity, has the ability to actually alter fetal growth. So fetal development as the fetus, as the individual grows from the womb, alcohol has the capacity to alter that normal growth trajectory. So essentially, it could lead to things like delayed development, you know, as when compared to neurotypicals of the same age, it could lead to sometimes facial deformation. And sometimes it would also lead to a lot of organ damage and there is no limit to the number of organs alcohol has capacity to damage when individuals are exposed in the womb.
0: Thinking about the child's obviously brain development and perhaps the cognitive functioning later on in life?
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I think one of the most significant areas being um, damaged is areas of the brain, especially if the individual is exposed to alcohol, say in the first trimester. I mean, other trimesters are equally impactful, but then that first trimester is really crucial. And I did mention about um, the possibility of facial deformation, which we now know by research that actually only less than 10% of individuals with FASD would actually evidence this facial deformation. This means a majority of people who have been impacted by alcohol in the womb may actually just appear uh, regular or normal in that sense, but really there is significant brain damage in terms of their cognition, like you rightly said, executive functioning and so on.
0: It always stuck with me, one of the conversations we had, that you said about how it affects young people's behaviour, so the criminality, uh, the lack of boundaries and things like this, leads them or opens a door for them to, to be in this environment much more easily.
1: Yeah, thank you, Linda. Yes, that's correct. FASD in itself, it's not criminal. It's not the fact that an individual has FASD does not automatically mean, I mean, is a criminal or they are criminals, but it's just certain features of the condition, provide a context for criminal behavior. And I can explain that. This has been the subject of my research in the last four to five years. I have been focused on trying to explore the vulnerabilities of individuals of FASD to criminal justice encounters and their vulnerabilities during the justice system encounters. And one thing we know from international evidence at the moment is that individuals with FASD are 19 times more likely to encounter the police. They are 19 times more likely to be sentenced to prison. They are 19 times more likely to be involved in court processes. And this is because of a number of factors. So firstly, we did touch upon this briefly earlier on things like impulsivity, you know, the ability to control impulse. In most neurotypicals, a lot of us, we have that ability to regulate what it is or how we respond to situations. But in individuals of FASD, we see a bit of impairment in that ability, the ability to learn from mistakes, the ability to weigh the consequences of actions. And I think very, central to interviewing in forensic context. My research has again added to the literature by finding out that this population is more susceptible during interviews so they are more easily they are more likely to actually admit a responsibility or liability for crimes they did not commit in the first place and this is actually the subject of, of my current research and things like their level of compliance the level at which they would just be pressured into committing criminal acts is Quite distinct compared to neurotypicals, their ability or the extent to which they fabricate. So, fabricate is when they are being interviewed, they sort of show tendencies to actually generate new stories into the existing scenarios which is self-incriminating in itself and that sort of leads to things like you know confabulation. Confabulation essentially is and um, when individuals cannot remember things accurately, they would you know begin to fill in the missing gaps with imaginative stories. So these are some of the vulnerabilities that you know are really, really um, obvious in individuals of FSD and of course it's a spectrum. So the extent of this vulnerability Will vary from individual to individual depending on the extent of impact or the extent of exposure to alcohol while they were in the womb.
0: And you've done a lot of research and investigation. How do you actually research this?
1: Essentially, I use a combination of forensic tools and tools that are also employed in psychology. So, for instance, for my PhD research, I actually... Combine things like the WISC, uh, which is a measure of intelligence quotient. I did use another tool, which is has been used in forensic settings, known as the Gudgensen Suggestibility Scale. I think it's a fairly well-known tool that gives the exact or gives you a picture of how suggestible individuals are when they come in contact with forensic interviewers. And it's quite an interesting tool in the sense that once the young person comes before you or the individual, you just give them a short story, ask them a number of questions that contain misleading suggestions. And from then on, you're able to judge the responses of the individual and then extract the extent to which they've admitted false suggestions. And then also you are able to extract the extent to which they have confabulated or fabricated new items to what you've actually told them. So it's, it's actually a combination of standardized tools, and it just gives you that the picture of intelligence quotients, gives you a picture of their level of executive function. With executive functioning, I've used tools like the brief. The brief is just a behavioral rating you know of executive function in individuals. So it's, it's quite a, a mix or a combination of tools to arrive at these conclusions.
0: Do you find that perhaps the police or law enforcement and criminal justice system is open to to uh, looking at these in different lights or do you find that that's quite a hard door to get through?
1: It's been an interesting journey, I will say from my personal experience, it's been quite, I've had a good amount of audience and engagement with professionals within the criminal justice system. As I speak to you, the Cumbria Constabulary is actually well engaged with the findings of my research and, you know, really willing to partner going forward to understand more about the vulnerabilities of these individuals, which is a very good thing because like I said to you, uh, international evidence has shown us that actually individuals with these conditions are 19 times more likely to encounter the justice system, of course, in the form of professionals like the police. So essentially, for instance, with the Cumbria Constabulary, we have a standing memorandum of understanding where we'll be exchanging knowledge. So I'll be involved in providing information or trainings to police officers in the next few years, four to five years and then we will sort of keep reevaluating and seeing how. This information, this research evidence is employed in practice and how it has changed their practice. Similar positive engagement also from the probation service. I have been discussing or I've been in touch with the Berry probation service here in Greater Manchester. And again, we've signed that same, that similar kind of memorandum of understanding, which uh, I think it gives a bit of hope, so to speak, that, you know, professionals are really wanting to engage to learn more. I've also been in touch with the National Youth Justice Service, which again has engaged positively. And hopefully, you know, as we go along, we would be able to just share this knowledge and see how professionals can take into consideration some of these factors when dispensing their mandates per se.
0: What role do you think that education can play for perhaps early intervention in improving outcomes for young people?
1: Yes, it's really crucial, I mean, this early intervention in that sense, because like I've said earlier, and the trajectory to criminal justice system encounter seems, you know, a lot of times something parents of these young people are very, very concerned about. As part of my research, I've interviewed families, interviewed the young people, and I've got a few Journal articles on that peer review at the moment that talks about that sort of real apprehension that their young people who would, you know, end up in the justice system because of the impairments from FASD. And really the early intervention plays a massive role because it gives a chance to, at the early onset, provide a leeway, provide a chance to embed the possible outcomes for these young people and this would involve you know professional social workers even educators teachers and all sorts of professionals these young people will come in contact with once they are aware of FASD they are aware of the implications of FASD they are aware of the characteristic impairments that are associated with FASD I believe together both as researchers as educators as practitioners as professionals we can all team to together constructively and really exchange this knowledge and better or contribute to just helping these young people have more positive outcomes.
0: Obviously, this whole syndrome is possible to eradicate it. So the importance of raising awareness about FASD, so preventing alcohol use in pregnancy, obviously is a key factor.
1: Yeah, I I do agree. I agree, Linda. It's absolutely a very crucial factor. And this is, again, where education comes in play, because part of one of the interventions we we think would be useful is increasing awareness in all quarters about the impact of alcohol consumption in pregnancy. And we are quite conscious as researchers that, you know, when we talk about abstinence in pregnancy, I know there's a school of thought that thinks we are trying to restrict liberties, but really sometimes it's just thinking about the possible impact on the young people. And again, we are really conscious of the language we use as researchers. We are really conscious that there are several factors that surround the consumption of alcohol in pregnancy. So for instance, a lot of parents, a lot of mothers may not even know they are pregnant in the first trimester and they just carry on their social lives where we are very cognizant of these facts. We also know that a lot of people, due to stressful situations in their lives, they would go to the use of alcohol as coping mechanisms. We are also conscious that alcohol is socially very well acceptable within the society. And this is quite, you know, these are the context in which we, we do operate with this research. And we are quite mindful of the kind of language we use. We do avoid the blame-shame language because it's very stigmatizing when we use such language. So it's it's, we come from a position of wanting to propose pro-social models as researchers to say, well, we know this is a problem and this is something society has been really accustomed to over centuries, over so many years, but this is the impact we've noticed. How can we, with professionals, practitioners, members of the public, come together to You know, just ensure that such outcomes, because it's totally irreversible, you see, Linda, the the impacts are irreversible. They are lifelong. Uh, So it's really a clarion call to members of the public. I mean, good people like yourselves, other professionals within the justice system to say, well, we can team together to actually do better and create more awareness on this.
0: It's such a huge update, and we're not doing it justice today with a 20-minute slot. We're literally scratching the surface, so perhaps we can have a, another conversation about a, a little bit more in depth, but I think it's really important here today is just raising awareness that it actually exists and it is affecting so many people's lives.
1: Yeah, truly, truly. And um, We know here in the UK that alcohol consumption is of highest globally. In the whole world, we have an alcohol consumption in pregnancy of over 41%. And that sort of speaks to, you know, the potential of... I mean, young people just being impacted by alcohol. So, yes, I do agree. There's there's still a lot of work to be done in this area to create this awareness. And and hopefully we'll get there. We keep banging the drum. And, of course, with cooperation of professionals like, you know, yourselves and other practitioners, policymakers, I think we absolutely would be matching to that spot where we can absolutely say we have controlled the amount of young people with this condition.
0: Thank you so, so much for your time. I know we grabbed you out of your work time. It's
1: a pleasure. It's a pleasure, Linda. Always a pleasure to talk about this. Anything at all that will contribute positively to making society a better place. I think that is our objective as researchers. So why not? Thank you.
0: And if anybody wants to get in contact with you and and know more about this, what's the best way of contacting you?
1: Well, I am on social media, I'm quite active on LinkedIn. I am on Twitter, I am also, by email, it's also another viable means. I don't know if it's something we need to maybe share alongside this or. but yes, these are different ways. I'm happy for people to email any day, anytime, anywhere, anyhow, it is always a pleasure to just contribute in any way to increase the understanding of this and its implications.
0: That's wonderful. Yes, I will put all the social media contacts up as well. But obviously, the easiest way also is the Salford University because and you're on their new video as well.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, well, it's been a pleasure being part of the University of Salford. I started off as an MSc student and I mean, with the sort of positive environment I found for this research, um, it has led me to pursuing a PhD with the University of Salford and then now I am a university fellow. And a member of staff here. And yes, absolutely. Um, it's, it's I'm, I'm really pleased to say the University of Salford has provided a real positive environment for the growth of this research. And the research group here at the university is, I think, it's sort of um, highlighted to be one of the most expert groups here in the UK. Or we have the largest team, actually. We have the largest team researching these conditions. We've got researchers doing prevalence studies. We've got researchers in neglect trauma and you know FASD all joined together studying we've got researchers who have you know worked with midwives who have worked with families in different aspects and then of course the criminal justice research group which I am absolutely part of as well.
0: Well, thank you so, so much. And again, just thank you for being with us. And it's been a real eye-opener, I'm sure, for many people that this actually even exists. So uh, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you for having me, Linda. It's been a pleasure speaking to you.
0: Thank you for listening to true crime people and places if you have enjoyed this episode please subscribe and leave a review and if you have any suggestions for future topics please let us know see you next time